This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem. Of a detour. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode features dramatizations and discussions of graphic dismemberment and death. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Please note, the story you're about to hear is not drawn from any single account of the Tengu. This mythological trickster, which has appeared as everything from a dog to a half-bird, half-man to even a kite, varies across the historical and mythological records of India, China, and Japan. We've combined myriad accounts of the Tengu and its literary and cultural history for this episode. The pious monk Shinran had climbed the mountain every day for the past five years. Today, he would climb it once more. Shinran only carried a small paper lantern as he walked. Even though snow had begun to fall and blanket the trail, Shinran continued his steep ascent. The surroundings were a more than ample warning not to stop. The edges of the path were littered with corpses, or at least pieces of them. They were the lost monks, the ones who had died or committed suicide out of shame for abandoning this holy trek. As he rounded a bend, a wizened man with a comically long nose approached him and spoke. Sir, I am lost. Can you help? But Shinran was already behind schedule due to the deepening snow. He ignored the old man. He needed to reach the next temple on the trail before dark. Pressing on through the wind-buffeted mountain, Shinran noticed the man again. How did he get up the trail so quickly? As Shinran prepared to push past him once more, the old man transformed into Buddha. Tears froze as they ran down Shinran's cheeks. He had finally done it. Before Shinran's eyes, the snow on the mountain began to melt. Azaleas and Japanese maples shed their mantles of white. Flowers blanketed every inch of ground. The clouds above cleared, and the moon now shone brightly. With every passing moment, Shinran felt closer and closer to Bodhi, pure enlightenment. He sat down on a thick patch of grass, breathed deeply, and then gently closed his eyes. With each exhalation, he sank deeper and deeper into peace. A dark grimace formed on the Buddha's face as he watched Shinran shiver in the snow. Great wings unfurled from the Buddha's outstretched arms. But even the heavy flapping couldn't disturb Shinran's intense meditation. He was found the next morning, sitting in a full lotus pose, frozen stiff, 
a look of peace etched eternally onto his ice-shrouded face. Shinran had not met the Buddha. He'd become yet another victim of the trickster of the mountain, the Tengu. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling their stories, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creation of these beasts. Where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we'll be discussing the Tengu, a powerful and mischievous shapeshifter from Japanese mythology. As we examine various folktales about the mythological trickster, we'll track its evolution from a fierce demonic dog in Chinese folklore to the modern half-man, half-bird creature that permeates Japanese art and ceremony today. While the Tengu is most frequently cited as a creature from Japanese folklore, its origins are far more complex and wide-reaching. It's most accurately described as an amalgamation of creatures from Indian, Chinese, and Japanese cultures, which combined and changed over thousands of years. This slow process of combining different belief systems and stories into a single figure is known as syncretism. Many scholars hypothesize that the being syncretized as the Tengu had its origins in the Chinese legendary creature named Tiango. Translating to celestial hound, the Tiango was depicted as either a black dog or a meteor. Some scholars theorize the origin of the Tiango was a devastating meteor that slammed into China in the 6th century BCE, its fiery tail reminiscent of a dog's. As the meteor caused extreme damage, the Tiango was viewed as a harbinger of great destruction and was frequently used in Buddhist folk stories to foreshadow a war or military uprising. At this time, the primary religion in Japan was Shinto, which centers around the belief that powerful spirits inhabit both animate and inanimate objects. When Buddhism migrated to Japan in the 6th century CE, stories about the meteor dog Tiengo came with it. The earliest written mention of the Tiengo comes from this period, appearing in the Nihon Shoki, one of the oldest chronicles of Japanese history. In the 23rd book of the Nihon Shoki, published in 720 CE, we find a passage about another heavenly event. It reads, a great star floated from east to west, and there was a noise like that of thunder. The people of that day said that it was the sound of the falling star. Others said that it was earth thunder. Hereupon, the Buddhist priest Bin said, it is not the falling star, but the celestial dog, the sound of whose barking is like thunder. Soon after this passage about a falling star, the Tiango became the Tengu and lost its canine characteristics. The Japanese Tengu became overly avian, with thick wings and a sharp beak melded with a muscular man's body. 
Many scholars suggest that the change may be connected to another cosmic figure that was introduced to Japan around this same time. Half man, half eagle, the Hindu deity Garuda was a creature that primarily served as the great god Vishnu's steed. Like the Tengu, Garuda was known for its ability to transform from bird of prey into a human. Historians speculate that when the Indian deity was introduced to Japan, the stories of Garuda and folktales of the Tengu began to intermingle. Garuda's ability to conjure up great storms with its all-powerful wings became a defining trait of the Tengu in later centuries. The black dog meteor of the sky had officially become a winged Garuda-like man of the mountains. In the first visual representations of the Japanese Tengu around 1296 CE, they're depicted as bird-like beings that could also take human form. These Tengu were called the Karasu Tengu. They were known for their ability to fly and their intense dislike of snakes. On the rocky shore of a deep lake, a dragon napped in the sun. Far from the dragon of European medieval lore, with its mighty horns, four legs, and fire-belching mouth, this Japanese dragon was a quite small, beautifully scaled snake. The lake was the dragon's home, as well as the place from which it drew its strength. All was peaceful until... Out of nowhere, the dragon was airborne, and not of its own volition. Clutched in the talons of a large kite, a bird of prey, the dragon was terrified. Yet no matter how hard the kite squeezed, the dragon would fight back. It snapped and writhed, a battle in midair. The mystical dragon should have won, but then it realized this was no simple bird of prey. The kite was a tengu. The creature had a magic of its own. As they fought in the air, the dragon quickly realized that it and the tengu were equally matched. In its form as a kite, the tengu swooped low over the landscape. It headed for a mountain in the distance. From high above, the Tengu dove, the mountain below looming larger and larger. The dragon worried. Unlike its adversary, it could not fly. The kite opened its talons, intentionally releasing its prey. The dragon spun and tumbled through the air, falling, falling, until... It slid to a stop, wedged into a deep cleft in the mountain. The dragon wriggled and wormed, but there was no room for it to move between the rocks. So far from the waters of its lake, it could not summon the power to change its shape. The dragon let out a mournful cry. Death was near. Days passed, and the dragon wasted away. As it cursed the Tengu who trapped him there, something large and heavy dropped out of the sky and landed right on top of it. It was a priest, and he seemed just as confused and lost as the dragon. The priest and the dragon could hear the Tengu howling with laughter far above them. The laughter receded as the Tengu flew away. The dragon realized the priest had a flask of water around his waist. If he could just reach it, he could get them out of their predicament. The dragon stretched for the flask. The priest screamed, trying to clamber away and out of the crevice. 
The dragon realized the priest thought it was a poisonous snake, but unable to speak in this form, it could do nothing. The dragon watched as the priest fought his way upwards, fingers bleeding on the stone. Soon, the blood caused his hands to slip. As he fell, the priest's flask knocked against the rock, bursting open. Drops of water splashed out. The dragon did its best to lunge under it. The water sizzled as it touched the dragon's back. The dragon wriggled and stretched its body tall. It began to sprout arms and legs. The priest stared in astonishment. The snake, which he now realized was a powerful dragon, had transformed into a small boy. Before the priest could move or do anything at all, the boy lifted him up onto his back and flew out of the cleft. The Tengu saw the dragon boy and priest escape and glowered in anger. He whipped out his fan and began to draw it back and forth in the air before him, the ancient rite meant for summoning storms. With each wave of the fan, lightning danced across the black skies and thunder rattled the earth to its core. Weaving through a chaos of driving rain, the dragon and priest flew through the storm. After escaping the wrath of the Tengu, the dragon boy deposited the priest safely back at his house in Mount Hiezan. Not every story involving the Tengu ended in such a peaceful manner. In fact, most end in misfortune. In his authoritative work on the Tengu, Asiatic scholar M.W. Devisser highlighted this quality, describing the Tengu as a mountain demon who deluded people and decoyed them into the depths of the woods. The Tengu is a trickster, a prankster, an agent of chaos who puts unwitting victims in inescapable situations, and it maniacally laughs as they try to force their way out. By the 11th and 12th centuries CE, the Tengu had taken on an even more malevolent image, portrayed as a sworn enemy of Buddhism. The winged beings were classified as either vengeful spirits or Shinto kami, essentially gods. Tengu could appear as alluring women, or even the Buddha, and were said to trick eager monks by offering shortcuts to enlightenment. In fact, the Buddhist term Tengudo described a realm reserved for Buddhist practitioners who had not overcome the temptations of evil. But the Tengu had not yet completed its evolution, and as Japan entered the 13th century CE, the mischievous troublemaker would become something even stranger. Coming up, the Tengu steps into a new role as humanity's ally. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now back to the story. In 
The Tengu was first conceived as a celestial hound in Chinese folklore, but when it transferred to Japanese mythology, it gradually evolved into a mean-spirited trickster with the body of a man and the wings and beak of a bird. By the late 13th and early 14th century CE, visual representations of the Tengu started to change once more. The Tengu was now depicted as a goblin-like man with a bright red face and an absurdly long nose. It often wore the attire of a Yamabushi, an ascetic monk of the mountains. This new form became known as the Konoha Tengu. While they now appeared more human than ever, Konoha Tengu retained characteristics that harkened back to its bird-like shape. Their giant nose was simply a beak by another name, and they occasionally still had hawk-like wings. From kidnapping priests to misleading monks to tormenting dragons, the newest iteration of Tengu grew infamous for their vast appetites for troublemaking. But on occasion, they also served as cherished allies. By the 14th century CE, tales of Tengu offering expertise in weapon-making and martial arts spread through Japan. They graced worthy humans with special weapons, martial strategies, and even supernatural fighting abilities. Woodblock carvings from this period depict great samurais learning their arts from skilled Tengu. Perhaps the most famous Tengu pupil of them all was the legendary military commander Minamoto no Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune wept as the village burned around him. Next to him, his father bled out from a thousand cuts. Yoshitsune's mother, Tokiwa, knelt beside him. She whispered, Now is not the time for tears. Steal yourself, young one. The Taira clan spared the infant Yoshitsune and sent him to a monastery to be raised as a Buddhist monk. Yoshitsune excelled as a monk in training, quickly adapting to the monastic life. As he swept the halls, Yoshitsune would steady his hand, making sure that each movement of the whisk broom was as fluid and strong as possible. He put the same care into all of his chores, finishing each with calm precision. When he began to practice swordplay with a stick, concentration and dedication were already cemented into his character. But the monks practiced the sanctity of peace above all else. They took away the stick, replacing it with a calf to care for. He would not be a warrior. But Yoshitsune thought otherwise. After he was admonished by the monks for his warlike ambitions, he began sneaking away to a nearby village at night. There he would practice alone. Chanting songs, Yoshitsune swung his makeshift sword. He'd toss rocks high in the air, close his eyes, and try to hit them squarely across the valley before they could clatter to the earth. After a year, he could throw a handful of pebbles high into the sky and swat each one flawlessly. One evening, as rain-swollen clouds smothered the sun and a tempest began to kick up, Yoshitsune removed his blindfold. As the wind intensified, from its midst, a man appeared before him. Or so it seemed at first. Staring at the man, Yoshitsune noticed his obscenely long nose. 
his rippled muscular body and his feathered wings. Yoshitsune demanded, who are you? As the man snorted with derisive laughter, Yoshitsune raised his sword. Then with a roar of a voice, the man said, I am the king of the Tengu, and I have been watching you, young Yoshitsune. Hearing the word Tengu, Yoshitsune rushed at the man, sword raised high, but the Tengu sidestepped his thrust easily, swatting Yoshitsune's bottom in jest. After several failed attempts to attack the Tengu, Yoshitsune collapsed, breath heaving. Laughing again, the Tengu stood above the young boy and said, Today you begin your true training, Yoshitsune. Over the next few years, the Tengu taught Yoshitsune the secret arts of deadly swordsmanship. The boy was a monk by day, a samurai by night. Eventually, the Tengu was satisfied and praised the young man. Today, Yoshitsune, you are a man. With the remarkable martial arts skills learned from the Tengu, Yoshitsune went on to become a great samurai, a hero of Japanese folk stories. He went on to face the warrior priest Benkei, who sought to collect 1,000 swords from 1,000 fallen warriors. Benkei had defeated 999 men when he turned his attention to Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune would not give up his sword and faced Benkei in a battle to the death. Yoshitsune won. But he'd learned from the monks as well as the Tengu. He spared Benkei's life. Grateful, Benkei joined up with Yoshitsune and helped him on his quest to avenge his father. Yoshitsune trained Benkei and Benkei trained others, and soon the warriors with this training passed down from the Tengu became known by a new name, ninjas. Today, the martial art discipline known as ninjutsu recalls the Tengu tradition through a practice called Tengu training. In folklore, ninjas are experts in swordplay and fighting and great practitioners of magic. They seem to fly and disappear in clouds of smoke or perhaps clouds from a quickly summoned storm. The ninja's mask is even called a Tengu Gui. Around the 14th century, certain mountains in Japan became known as havens for Tengu, places where one could supposedly beseech the Tengu to learn the art of war. But these Tengu havens were not something to be approached lightly. The Edo government commanded Tengu to vacate the area while the shogun, or military leader, was present. In fact, even as late as 1860, Nikko city officials wrote, Whereas our shogun intends to visit the Nikko Mazolia next April, now therefore Yi Tengu and other demons inhabiting these mountains must remove elsewhere until the shogun's visit is concluded. The evolution of the Tengu was still ongoing, however. Despite brief forays training worthy samurais in the magical or martial arts, throughout most of the 18th century, the Tengu was again depicted as a trickster, not a mentor. And literature of this period relates countless stories of the Tengu possessing and abducting people, usually at random, and usually for fun. When the slave Akashi returned to the temple, the monks were surprised. He'd been missing for several days, 
they'd begun to consider him dead. He considered himself starving. Once he had finally eaten his fill, Akashi gathered the monks to explain his absence. Akashi began, A mysterious man took me away. He carried me to Tyson. Akashi's audience gasped in shock and dismay. For Tyson was a known Tengu mountain. If the monk had indeed been to such a dangerous place, it was a miracle that he left alive. Akashi continued, The man who took me levitated temples, set them on fire, and tossed them down the mountain. Flames rained into the valleys below, and screams echoed up the hills. Akashi described a meeting of several Tengu, who had all come from various mountains around Japan. A captive in the room, Akashi could only watch the monsters. He said, There were hideous demons. I saw their huge noses, their wings, their glaring eyes. There were Tengu from Atago, Kurama, Hira, and Hiezan. They talked about nothing but a great war that is coming. After the meeting, the Tengu tossed me into a river and laughed as I nearly drowned. I feigned going under, and their laughs were only louder. So I swam as far as I could, only surfacing to draw breath until I made it out of their sights and down the mountain. As Akashi finished, his fellow monks fell silent. A heavy moment passed. The head priest stared deeply into Akashi's eyes and pronounced, It seems you got drunk on sake and ran away. You don't need to make up such fantastic stories, Akashi. The monks all laughed and teased Akashi. There was no war coming, but he insisted his story was the truth. He yelled, I swear I was taken and possessed by a Tengu. We must prepare for a great war. <laughs> this only led to more derision. Even the monks meditating on the nearby hillside heard the laughter from the temple that day. Akashi was shamed and sent to his room, but he continued to shout about the great war that was coming. The next morning, Akashi headed to the temple to meditate when he got a sudden urge. He needed to climb. Spying the highest point of the temple, Akashi began to scale the lavish walls. Like an agile monkey, Akashi leapt from handhold to handhold with ease. Soon, a crowd of monks gathered, pointing up at Akashi in gasping confusion. He did not turn back. Akashi continued to wind his way higher and higher. Then Akashi let go. He fell backward for just a moment. Then Akashi paused, perpendicular in the air. His feet found the upright wall of the temple, and he walked toward the sky. He felt immense power radiating from within him as he reached the highest point of the roof. Akashi laughed down at the men who had laughed at him the night before. The Tengu were real, and they had given Akashi their power. Possessed by the Tengu, Akashi climbed frozen mountain peaks, heaved enormous boulders, and even lifted an entire pagoda with a single hand. At every feat, he shouted, they must prepare for war. At every feat, his message was ignored. As the news of Akashi's strange feats made its way into the countryside, the villagers interpreted them as miracles. Throughout all of Japan, great celebrations erupted. 
With the peasants no longer working the land, the local lords feared that some treachery was afoot and violently put an end to the festivities. That proved a dire mistake. Days later, the Tokugawa shogunate began a series of battles against the Toyotomi clan. Thousands were killed. The battles continued, spawning a war, and then the siege of Osaka. The siege of Osaka marked the end of the Kiecho era in Japan. This war changed the trajectory of the country and marked the start of a new, peaceful Japan, with the nation uniting under the Tokugawa shogunate in 1615. The Tengu had predicted a momentous war in Japan and, once again, confirmed its role as a harbinger of doom. Coming up, we'll explore one of the most famous Tengu stories from the late 18th century, The Woodcutter and the Tengu's Fan. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, back to the story. The complexity of folklore surrounding the Tengu provides a fascinating look into the Japanese psyche throughout the nation's history. By the end of the 6th century, Buddhism was firmly embedded in the Japanese psyche and triggered profound changes within the native Shinto religion. Just as the arrival of Buddhism had been a disruptive force, the Tengu also became a placeholder for anything disruptive in nature or in society. Over time, earthquakes, whirlwinds, war, and other forces of chaos were attributed to the Tengu. In fact, one of the Tengu's accessories was a sacred fan that could whip up a vicious storm. A storm which caused mayhem for anyone working outside, especially woodcutters. Chop, hack, splinter, chopping tree after tree, Fuzao hacked her way through a small grove. Soon, she would have enough tinder to keep her home warm and cozy through the snowy months ahead. But first, just a brief rest. Setting down her hatchet beside a Japanese cedar, she noticed something shiny, a small fan peeking out of a clump of bushes. The fan was incredibly ornate and glimmered with a mystical aura. Her curiosity rising to fever pitch, Fuzao picked up the fan. It looked like one that belonged to the mystical Tengu. She had heard stories about the Tengu's fans. Maybe she too could conjure storms or grow wings. She waved the fan, flapped and chanted, Grow, grow, grow like the Tengu, grow! 
It started as a tickling sensation in her nose, like a great sneeze building. Then her nose was growing. Larger and larger it grew, becoming heavier with each new inch. In a panic, Fu Zhao dropped the fan. But her nose kept growing by the second. The fan had gotten her into this predicament. Perhaps it could also change her back to normal. Fu Zhao leaned over to search for the fallen fan, but as she did, the weight of the enormous nose sent her toppling forward into the earth. Unable to lift her neck from the immense weight, she clawed around in the dirt for the fan. But as she pawed the dirt, her hand shot back. She had touched a feathered wing. Fuzao screamed. A tengu had landed beside Fuzao and was now gleefully watching her struggle. He mocked her. I see you've found my fan. She reached her hands out, grasping for the fan. Every time she neared it, though, the tengu moved it slightly further away. A cruel game, like a cat toying with a mouse. In pure frustration, Fuzao cried out, Enough already! The tengu reached out and snatched her nose, hauling it over his shoulder like a thick log. He yanked Fuzao by the nose, moving her toward a large tree in the distance. All the while, her nose kept growing. Fuzo's arms were flailing like an insect on its back when the tengu finally reached the enormous tree. With Fuzao's screams echoing throughout the forest, the tengu began to wrap her nose around the tree. The tengu's muscles strained as he circled the tree. Once, twice, thrice. Eventually, Fuzao's nose was completely tied around the trunk. He fastened it in a fancy knot. Stepping back to admire his handiwork, the tengu let out a boisterous laugh before taking flight. Fuzao was left tied around the tree by her own nose. At least it had finally stopped growing. Eventually, she passed out from the intense pain. Day became night. Still, Fuzao remained, tied by her nose to the tree. The next day, Fuzao's husband went looking for her. When he found Fuzao, she was still unconscious. Spotting her awful situation, he attempted to unwind the nose. The minute he yanked at Fuzao's nose, however, she woke up and screamed. Fuzao's husband tried to calm her, explaining that he'd free her from the tree. He tried again to untie her nose, and Fuzao screamed again. He paused, holding his ears, and restarted. But every time he started to unwrap her nose from the tree, Fuzao would scream with such discomfort that the very leaves on the trees trembled. Finally, Fuzao's husband gave up on untying the nose. He began searching for another way. Fuzao cried out, please don't. But it was too late. Her husband had found her hatchet and was approaching the tree. Leaning back, he closed his eyes and chopped with all of his might. The hatchet sang as it drove into Fuzao's nose. After several steady whacks, Fuzao was finally free. But there was a bloody gap in the center of her face. It never fully healed. Fuzao would never have a nose again. Her curiosity punished for simply using the Tengu's fan. 
This folktale offers a simple moral. The curious will be disciplined. We find a modern analog in the oft-quoted, Curiosity killed the cat. The tangu increasingly became a vehicle for delivering such morals, and by the 18th and 19th century was often used to frighten children into good behavior. As Deviser wrote in The Tengu, carrying away boys had become their principal sport, just as it is today. Even nowadays, the country people beat drums when a child is lost and call upon the tengu to bring it back. Presently, two major forms of tengu permeate Japanese culture, appearing in both story and statue form. The bird version is now called the kotengu, or lesser tengu, and the long-nosed man is the daitengu, or greater tengu. Even though the beaked tengu is older, the daitengu is said to be the stronger form and rules over the lesser kotengu. And as the daitengu took deeper root in Japanese cultural consciousness, it was seen less as an evil figure and more as a symbol for the folly of pride. An enormous nose, in fact, became a symbol for a monk brought down by his own arrogance. Even in modern-day Japan, the expression tengu ninaru is used to describe a conceited or vain person, what we might call a show-off. The tengu's seamless evolution through Japan's history makes it a truly stunning mythical monster. With each change in Japanese religion or rule, the myth adapted too. In the 1890s, the great Japanese scholar Inoue Inyo said as much in a series of lectures on the tengu, later amassed and printed under the title Tenguron. He described the beings as an important psychological and cultural symbol for the people of Japan. Later, the scholar Yanagita agreed with this assessment in his essays on the yokai and supernatural. He wrote, the tengu take on various appearances and are by no means limited to having wings and long noses. Yet, they often possess special characteristics, the origins of which are in common with that of Bushido and do not exist in other countries. Bushido was a code of honor developed by the early samurai class of Japan, which centered around adherence to eight supreme virtues. Rectitude, courage, benevolence, politeness, sincerity, honor, loyalty, and self-control. By conflating the characteristics of the Tengu with the Bushido, Yanagita made a case for the creature to now be wholly Japanese, completely divorced from its Chinese and Indian roots. Inoue claimed that all Tengu can be accounted for by two distinct phenomena. The first is the fear of the unknown. As most Japanese don't live in the mountains and instead in the countryside, Inoue surmised that the childhood stories of the Tengu became a kind of boogeyman. Anything that a person encountered in the mountains that was unknown became a Tengu. He also claimed that all the great tales of possession were nothing but cases of abnormal psychology. To Inoue, the Tengu and its supernatural abilities were fears that lived within a person's mind. The Tengu continues to be a prevalent figure in Japanese culture, appearing frequently in anime and manga series. They feature heavily in yearly festivals that have been celebrated since the early Edo period, where it's common for people to dress like Daitengu by donning Yamabushi robes and Pinocchio-like noses. If the person dressed as a Tengu happens to hit a bystander, it's said to have miraculous effects. If it hits a woman, it will help her with childbirth. If it strikes a young boy, he will grow up to be wise. 
children even chant a song to the tengu as they attempt to fly a toy kite. Tengu-san Kaze Okura, or Lord Mountain Spirit, please give me some wind. Even the idea of the kite itself relates to the earliest images of the tengu as a bird of prey. The tengu does not appear only in children's rhymes, though. The name infuses multiple Japanese words. Tengu otoshi is the thundering sound of an earthquake. Tengu kaze is a whirlwind which carries people away. Tengu bi is something akin to foxfire or will-o'-the-wisp. All are aberrations of natural order. All attempt to describe an act of chaos itself. As de Visser summed up wonderfully, everything strange and mysterious is ascribed to the tengu. Whether it's tormenting a sacred dragon, misleading Buddhist monks, teaching young boys to become deadly samurais, or simply imparting moral lessons, the tengu stands as a figure of chaos and disorder. By providing a name and identity for the chaos, the Japanese people find a mythological comfort in this strange yokai. And as long as unexpected events disrupt the lives of the people of Japan, we can be sure that the tengu will always be there to serve as an explanation for the chaos. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Drew Moreland, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson.